You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. On the corner of 32nd Street and Broadway in New York City, not far from where once a year floats an inflated Bart Simpson's roll down the street in front of the Macy's department store for the Thanksgiving parade, an area known as Herald Square, sits a dark green statue of an old man with spectacles on, leaning back in his chair, his arms slouched over the armrests. If the average passerby cared to inspect its base, they would find that it is a statue of Horace Greeley, an icon of 19th century American journalism. Herald Square is an interesting memorial point for Horace Greeley, who was the former editor of the newspaper, the New York Tribune. He couldn't stand the Herald, and he spent a good chunk of his ink attacking that paper's editor, William Bennett. Nor did the Herald love him back, with Bennett referring to Greeley routinely in his pages as a wretch or an ogre. Such was American journalism in the 1840s and 50s. Greeley's Tribune supported the Whigs, then later the Republicans. Personally, he had a socialist view. He was concerned about the slums and the average working people of New York City. If you know one quote of Greeley, it's, Go West, young man, which was not the celebration of manifest destiny that it might seem. Not really was he intending to call America to explore from ocean to ocean. It was his exhortation to the working poor and his suggestion on how they could improve their lot. He also argued successfully for a Homestead Act to provide free or cheap land for the downtrodden Western newcomers. Greeley's Tribune was a Whig paper, argued for a protective tariff, was decidedly abolitionist, and opposed Democratic candidates, especially President Polk. Greeley argued against the Mexican War, which he spoke of in terms that it's doubtful few published newspapers would refer to the Iraq conflict today. Greeley called Mexico a phantomless abyss of crime and absurdity. The fact that it was a war that we were easily winning did not deter Greeley. He called President Polk the father of lies and blared headlines across his paper. Sign anything, ratify anything, do anything to end the guilt, the bloodshed, and the shame. In 1848, as that war was concluding, Greeley himself was appointed by New York Whig leaders to fill an unexpired term in Congress, and he used his short time to rail against abuses in that body. He at once saw injustice in a law that compensated congressmen for $8 for every 20 miles they traveled from Washington, D.C. to their districts. Got a reporter to track the average congressman's route compared to postal routes, and found that most were being overcompensated. He forced a vote on this issue on the House floor, and at the end of voting, when it was clear his motion was not going to pass, he took the floor and said to his fellow congressman, I know you know not of saving. Your gentlemanly work is spending, taking, distributing. His fellow members did not change the compensation scheme or were angered by Greeley's motion, threatened to expel him, but later decide against it, fearing for the publicity. Greeley's paper was influential and important, not only in its own circulation, but his comments were often reprinted in other papers, which was a common occurrence at the time. 
newspapers would exchange with each other, a kind of early American World Wide Web. Greeley played an influential role in the founding of the Republican Party, and later he was very influential in drumming up support from Abraham Lincoln in the Republican Convention of 1860. It was not, however, that Greeley was a huge fan of Lincoln, but Greeley did not want Governor William Seward of New York to win the nomination, and so he supported Lincoln. When later, Lincoln would win the nomination and the election, and in a conciliatory gesture would make Seward his Secretary of State, Greeley was angered. Greeley was impatient and impulsive, and his newspaper reflected that. Prior to the Civil War, Greeley resisted calls for peace with the South, or war with the South, saying, let them go. But after Fort Sumner, Greeley became a warmonger. He put a headline in the paper in extremely large font for a solid week, saying, forward to Richmond, huge block letters. One's reminded of a breaking news alert at one of the cable networks today. Forward to Richmond, he said, the rebel Congress must not be allowed to meet there on the 20th of July. By that date, the place must be held by the National Army. With ink and type, Greeley sought to order an army. Many blamed Greeley for inciting public opinion and encouraging General Irwin McDowell and the Lincoln administration into hurrying a show of force at the Battle of Bull Run before the Union Army was ready. And it ended with Union forces in disarray and the South hardened in their opposition. Greeley backed the commander-in-chief when he issued the Emancipation Proclamation in the fall of 1862, saying, God bless Abraham Lincoln. But as the war took its toll in the next year, Greeley soured again, saying he feared there could not be a good war or bad peace. He attempted to work out a peace deal with Confederate agents in Canada, which ended up being an embarrassment for him. After the war, Greeley, who had argued for marching to Richmond and argued for emancipation of the slaves, now called for amnesty for the Confederates, for the slave owners, and a pardon for Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee. During Grant's presidency, Greeley was upset by corruption in his administration and tired of Union troops in the South, and he joined the liberal Republican movement of 1872 and entered the presidential race as the anti-Grant candidate, accepting the support of the Democratic Party that he had trashed his entire editorial career. He was ridiculed as a turncoat and a crazy man. Following his defeat on election day, he checked into a sanitarium, and there he died before the electoral votes could be counted for him in the presidential race. With today's confusing morass of cable channels, with revelations of papers carrying stories for administrations, it may lead us to question, when did the media lose its bipartisanness, its objectivity? But the question may be, when did the media have it? In Horace Greeley, we have but one example that if you're looking for objectivity in the history of America, you'll certainly find it in a strange variety. Greeley's erraticness may have been the closest you got to a kind of objective viewpoint in the 19th century. If the fact that Greeley sat in Congress while running a newspaper as its editor seems shocking, it was not so at the time. His rival, Henry Raymond, was the chairman of the Republican National Committee and ran Abraham Lincoln's re-election, all the while while remaining as editor of the New York Times. Later in the century, both names associated with tabloid or yellow journalism, Pulitzer and Hearst, would serve in Congresses at different times, with Hearst also running for New York governor and New York City mayor. Both realized they had more power in ink than in office as one votes of hundreds. 
Joseph Metal, the publisher of Chicago Tribune and another Lincoln supporter, later became mayor of Chicago. President Warren Harding was a newspaper editor prior for running for office. And when Harding ran, he faced off against Governor James M. Cox of Ohio, who had also built up a name that even remains today in the Ohio newspaper business, making the 1920 election a battle of newspaper publishers turned politicians. Newspapers and politics mixed easily, as old Greeley would have wanted. He had no interest in a new profession of newspaper men. Newspaper men, he said famously, came from the bar, the pulpit, or the street. They're real people, in a sense, with real opinions, who also were publishing newspapers. Before the American Revolution, there were 37 newspapers in the colonies, and many one-off pamphlets and leaflets going around. Newspapers were an important part of colonial life. Newspapers first spread outrage about the tea tax and the Stamp Act. During the Revolution, newspapers were important to spreading the Patriot cause. The Continental Congress asked for people to save their rags so it could be made into paper pulp. George Washington insisted on the printing of the New Jersey Gazette, while the troops were in Valley Forge so they'd have something to read and build their morale. The beginnings of the nation, just as the Founding Fathers quickly chose their sides between these two parties, the Federalists of Hamilton and the Anti-Federalists or Republicans or Democratic Republicans of Thomas Jefferson, so did the nation's newspapers. It was just simply understood that papers represented a party. Politics was important to them. Political parties represented large groups of motivated, usually literate people. If a paper started out without a party just for commercial interest, it quickly found that it was linking itself to a party. Newspaper names that today contain the words Republican or Democrat are the last vestiges of the partisan nature of newspapers at our country's founding. Noah Webster, prior to creating a respected American dictionary, was a lawyer and an early newspaper writer who urged the changing of the Articles Confederation and supported the new Constitution. Later, he was tapped by the Federalists to print a newspaper espousing their views, and his Minerva newspaper gave an excellent defense of the Washington administration, especially during the Jay Treaty with England, which were unpopular with most of the country and many newspapers. The Columbia Centennial of Boston supported the Federalist viewpoint and the Washington administration and asked that Washington be called the chief magistrate at all times. Meanwhile, the Boston Independent and the Albany Argus were Republican papers. In New York, America's capital in 1789, the official Federalist paper was John Fenno's Gazette of the United States, which saluted the Washington administration and his Treasury Secretary, Alexander Hamilton. When the capital was moved to Philadelphia, Fenno's paper followed. But when his circulation of 1,000 he had had in New York did not carry over with the move, he appealed to Hamilton for a loan. While there's no direct evidence, it's likely that Hamilton was at least able to arrange some money for Fenno through surrogates, and as he was able to keep the paper running after his appeal to Hamilton. Jefferson, becoming the leader of the quiet opposition in Washington's ostensibly nonpartisan first term, decided the Capitol needed a paper espousing his views and picked a fellow with a co- coincidentally similar-sounding name, Philip Freneau, who created the National Gazette, which attacked Hamilton and Federalists for siding with England and creating what he called a new monarchy. While he didn't give Freneau a loan, Jefferson got Freneau a small job at the Treasury. 
President Washington complained to Jefferson directly about Freneau's paper, not only because Freneau attacked Washington for wanting to be emperor of the world, but for sending the president three of his papers, as if, Washington said, I am to be the distributor. When Jefferson decided to resign as Treasury Secretary, Freneau was out of a job, and the National Gazette died too. The slack of attacking Federalists was picked up by Benjamin Franklin Bach, a grandson of Benjamin Franklin and his Aurora newspaper. Bach had no problem criticizing the president, where many others stayed away from that. At the end of Washington's term, weeks before he issued his now celebrated farewell address, Bach said, If a nation was debauched by a man, the American nation has been debauched by Washington. If a nation was ever deceived by a man, it was deceived by Washington. Let it be said that no man is an idol. Federalist papers outnumbered Jeffersonian Republican ones, and when Jefferson became president in 1800, the vile attacks continued. Should the infidel Jefferson be elected to the presidency, the seal of death is set that moment on our holy religion, said the Palladium, and reprinted in several newspapers, including the Federalist Hudson B. Smarting from the loss of power for his Federalist party in 1800, Alexander Hamilton spent $10,000 to set up a Federalist organ, the Evening Post, which is a direct ancestor to the New York Post of today. President Jefferson, in effect, created his own newspaper, the National Intelligencer. Its owner, Samuel Harrison Smith, had been printing a small paper in Philadelphia when Jefferson suggested he move to the new capital, Washington, D.C., on the promise that his paper would become the government's organ. This is a trend that would continue. Friends of Andrew Jackson created the United States Telegraph after he lost a contentious election to John Quincy Adams. Zachary Taylor created the Republic for a short-lived presidency. It was common for presidents to designate a paper that would be the administration's spokesperson. Fillmore used the National Intelligencer. Democrats like Franklin Pierce or James Buchanan spoke through the Washington Union, which was the Capitol's Democratic newspaper. Andrew Jackson gave at least 35 jobs to newspaper reporters, presumably in exchange for good press. At the time of the Civil War in New York City, Greeley's Tribune was one of 17 media choices, 17 newspapers, that New York citizens had, reflecting a choice of media only to be matched by the cable television of today. In addition to the Tribune, there was the reliably pro-Lincoln New York Times. Then there was the Democratic two-cent eight-page paper, the New York Daily News, owned by Benjamin Wood, who was the brother of Democratic Mayor Fernando Wood. The Daily News reflected the majority opinion in a city that was Democratic and voted against Lincoln two to one, and against his re-election by even a greater margin. The New York Daily News reflected thinking in a New York that was at best ambiguous about the Civil War, routinely decried the emptiness of this war upon our brethren. Up until the time of Lee's surrender, the New York Daily News continuously blasted New Yorkers with headlines that the South was going to win the war. New Yorkers could also read William Bennett's New York Herald, which had somewhat of a middle position, supporting the war, but wanting someone other than Lincoln to lead it. In 1864, when Lincoln faced re-election, the paper suddenly switched and supported Lincoln, suspiciously after Lincoln offered Bennett an ambassadorship to France, which he later had to turn down due to some publicity. 
It's after the Civil War that the first sign of freedom from party control is seen when several newspapers, the New York Times, the Evening Post, the Philadelphia Times, the Springfield Republican, and Harper's Weekly, all Republican Party newspapers, went against Ulysses S. Grant in the 1872 election and supported Horace Greeley. Perhaps a new era of journalism had arrived with freedom from party control. Whitelaw Reed, Greeley's successor at the Tribune, wrote, Independent journalism, that is the watchword of the future for the profession. An end of concealments, because it would hurt the party. An end of one-sided exhortations. Whitelaw Reed's comments did reflect the new consensus of a more independent and non-party-controlled journalism, though perhaps not as his real personal sentiments. As it turned out, Whitelaw Reed would turn the Tribune back into a solid Republican Party organ after Greeley's death. He was appointed Minister to France by Benjamin Harrison and ran for Vice President with Harrison as his vice presidential candidate in 1892. But it is true that papers became less partisan in the latter half of the 19th century going into the turn of the century as they appealed to much greater audiences than they had before, especially women who did not have the vote. Advertising surged during the latter half of the 19th century, especially from large department stores. Though America's literacy was increasing, it is perhaps true that its interest in public affairs was not. So rather than papers appealing to those most interested in politics, sensational news, which had always been a part of American newspapers, began to be the true focus. The most famous men among this period of journalism, of course, is Pulitzer and Hearst. When Hearst bought the New York World in the 1890s, it touched off a newspaper war in a battle of so-called yellow journalism. Hearst and Pulitzer are heavily associated with the nation's involvement in the Spanish-American War. But these papers were sensationalist, but not necessarily partisan. Certainly, Hearst favored William Jennings Bryan, the Democratic candidate, but he also did more to publicize William McKinley's splendid war and keep him in office than he could ever do to help Bryan. Mostly, Hearst was in it for himself and would later start his own party and run for New York mayor. It could probably be said that in the 20th century, most newspapers represented Republican viewpoints, though not always in a strong, partisan way as they had in the founding of the nation. The influence of newspapers waned, despite the fact that only a third and a fourth of newspapers supported them respectively. Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Harry S. Truman were elected to office in the 1940s. In closer elections, Republican preference in newspapers mattered. And John F. Kennedy sought to avoid or get around the influence of the newspapers by challenging Richard Nixon to a series of televised debates. As president, Kennedy would avoid the big newspaper editors by taking small beat reporters and inviting them to the Oval Office to get unprecedented access, in exchange, of course, for positive reporting. Lyndon Johnson offered a Houston publisher an approval of a bank merger that he was concluding if he could get good coverage in his paper. These actions were echoes of the old days of Jefferson or Jackson buying off journalists. If there's a crowning moment for objectivity in the press, a moment where it seemed like truth wins over politics, it's Watergate. And it is true that journalists, and certainly the Washington Post, played a key role in rooting out the activities of a president. But it might be useful to throw a little water on some of the myth. It has to be remembered that not all newspapers covered Watergate with the ferocity of Woodward and Bernstein. 
The story was barely covered by most of the media until months after the two City Beat journalists had first broken the story. In the first months of the scandal, with more than 430 reporters in Washington, only 15 worked on Watergate. In many ways, the Washington Post was out on a limb on Watergate. It published 200 news articles, more than double the number of its nearest competitor, the New York Times. And while Watergate stories were carried on the Washington Post on page one, they were carried only occasionally in other newspapers after the initial publicity about the break-in of the Democratic National Headquarters. What's especially troubling, if you look at the history of Watergate, is that few in the media challenged Nixon's White House version of events during the pivotal first months of the scandal. The break-in into the Democratic National Headquarters had occurred just as American voters were going to select a president. It's forgotten in history that the break-in and the initial post stories about Watergate broke before voters went to polls, before Nixon won in a landslide. The McGovern campaign, in fact, attempted to make use of Watergate in the 1972 campaign and even aired a few TV commercials on the subject. But the attempts fell on deaf ears, as only the Post was running stories about it. And there wasn't much media support to what McGovern's campaign was saying, to the theory that Nixon had something to do with the break-in at the headquarters of his opponent's party during an election. As Carl Bernstein says, too many people in the press bought the assumption that there was a new Nixon that he couldn't be involved in this. Bob Woodward said that he always thought it was too strong to say that the media brought down a president. As more materials are released, the media's role in uncovering Watergate diminishes in scope and importance. Television and newspapers publicize the story and perhaps even encourage more diligence and investigation. But it is clear that as Watergate unfolded from 1972 to 1974, media revelations of crimes and political misdeeds repeated what was already known to properly constitutive investigative authorities. In short, carefully timed leaks, not media investigations, provided the first news of Watergate. We now know the identity of Woodward and Bernstein's secret source, Deep Throat, came not from the Nixon administration, but from the investigative arm. Mark Felt was the number two man at the FBI. Watergate author Edward J. Epstein said, at best, reporters including Woodward and Bernstein only leaked elements of the prosecutor's case to the public a few days before it would otherwise have come out anyway. Without any help from the press, the FBI linked the burglars to the White House and traced their money to the Nixon campaign. But Woodward comes somewhere in the middle, saying that while reporters didn't bring down a president, they did have an effect. The late Sam Irvin, chairman of the Senate Watergate Committee, called Woodward and asked questions, and his work grew out of the stories that we did. Woodward also says that after Nixon's resignation, the presiding federal judge, the late John Circa, told him flat out that the Post stories influenced him to crack down on the Watergate conspirators. A Watergate prosecutor, Seymour Glanzer, says that all that really mattered, both legally and politically, was Nixon's failure to destroy his incriminating tape recordings not the media coverage. Woodward and Bernstein followed in our wake, Glanzer said. The idea that there were this great investigative team was a bunch of baloney. Watergate may have created more of a spin on objectivity and rigorous press after the fact. Media in the 70s, 80s, and 90s started looking for scandals mirroring the Watergate one. On January 25, 1988, Dan Rather interviewed George H.W. Bush, George Bush Sr., on a live CBS news program. Bush was vice president, 
and with several candidates, including Kansas Senator Bob Dole on his heels, it wasn't a sure thing that Bush would succeed Reagan. Rather would not interview the vice president in person, but instead a video monitor would, would be brought in. The image of Rather live with Bush in this video box and this interview would become so infamous that C-SPAN still sells copies of it on their website. Dan Rather had been looking into the Iran-Contra scandal and was sure there was more there than meets the eye. In the interview, Rather kept trying to implicate Bush. Over and over again, Rather would ask Bush a question about his knowledge in Iran-Contra. When Bush wouldn't concede that he had prior knowledge, Rather would interrupt him and ask him another question about the same topic, whether he knew about the support of the Contras made illegal by the Congress. Then Bush fired back. Bush said, I want to talk about why I want to be president, and I don't think it's fair to judge my whole career by a rehash on Iran. How would you like it, Bush said, if I judged your career by those seven minutes when you walked off the set in New York? Bush was referring to an incident in which Dan Rather had walked off his camera position during the U.S. Open to protest a news department decision to cut his coverage. Rather did not respond, but it was clear that the interview had gotten more personal than normal interactions between a reporter and, and politicians they are covering. A number of CBS affiliates called the Bush campaign to apologize for Rather's behavior. Mike Wallace, fellow CBS reporter, said his style was wrong. Dan lost his cool. Sam Donaldson said Rather went too far. I don't think we can get into a situation where we make accusations on our own authority. Rather had conducted the interview it appears, without any specific evidence that Bush was involved or had prior knowledge of the Iran-Contra scandal, and instead sought to get Bush, his interviewee, to admit to it. Howard Kurtz, a media reporter, would ask Dan Rather whether his interview was handled correctly. Kurtz said uh, to Dan Rather, You were aggressive with Vice President Bush when you interviewed him on CBS, but when you interviewed President Clinton during the impeachment ordeal, you asked him such things as, how's the first family holding up? Did the past year have a moral? What can parents tell their children about this whole episode? Rather denied pulling any punches. I go into each interview thinking to myself, how can I make this the best interview I've ever done? I sized up the moment. The news moment, if you will, sized up President Clinton. And I thought the interview was as revealing as anything he had done. Dan Rather's interview with President Bush Sr., might have been the zenith of antagonistic journalism, at least on TV. The interview went so well for Bush that some questioned whether he hadn't planned the whole thing from the beginning, knowing that Rather would likely set this trap for him. Certainly, he came prepared with a the comeback soundbite. There was no question of how another president viewed the action. In his 1990 book, In the Arena, Richard Nixon said, In the 88 campaign, we saw a striking example of how helpful an enemy can be. Nothing did more to eliminate George Bush's wimp image than his televised confrontation with Dan Rather. But in a live TV interview, we can immediately assess the objectivity or lack of objectivity of a reporter. Some behavior of the media is more difficult to trace. In her book, Slanting the Story, Trudy Lieberman talks about how in 1994, a group called the Capital Research Center set up an office in Washington with a mission to destroy the AARP the lobby group that for years had protected Social Security, Medicare, and other federal government programs. They recruited Wyoming Senator Alan Simpson, an, who, an elderly person who was also a conservative opponent of the AARP. They attacked the group's beginnings as an insurance seller and attacked the group's liberal views. 
With Simpton as a spokesperson, newspapers like the San Diego Tribune, Albany Times, St. Petersburg Times, San Francisco Chronicle, and Atlanta Journal used some of the attacks without investigating or providing an opposite viewpoint. Sam Donaldson on ABC questioned the president of AARP with Capital Research Center's unsubstantiated assumption. Lieberman's slanting the storybook does a pretty good job of tracing press releases from the Cato Institute attacking Head Start, finding its way into news accounts, in some cases verbatim and in all cases unchallenged, and describes how a Cato spokesperson who described himself as nothing more than a journalist was put on as a child care expert who said that Head Start was a waste of time and did nothing for children. The true problem with lack of objectivity today is that our expectations are set so higher than those who read the American media, the press of the early days. We expect our news to be fair and balanced. Early Americans expected they were getting one point of view, the view of the person who printed the paper. It wasn't called media at the time. That term came later. And using that term sets up an expectation that there's a middle ground for ideas. And that makes cases where information is pushed through the media all the more sinister. The case of Judith Miller, a New York Times reporter who had access to top government officials in the Bush administration, may be such a case. Miller came under criticism for her reporting on whether Iraq had weapons of mass destruction prior to the decision to use force against Iraq. On September 7, 2002, Miller reported the interception of metal tubes bound for Iraq. Her front-page story quoted unnamed American officials and American intelligence experts who said the tubes were intended to be used to enrich nuclear material and cited unnamed Bush administration officials who claimed that in recent months, Iraq had stepped up its quest for nuclear weapons and embarked on a worldwide hunt for materials to make an atomic bomb. Miller added that, Saddam Hussein's dogged insistence on pursuing his nuclear ambitions, along with what defectors described in interviews as Iraq's push to improve and expand Baghdad's chemical and biological arsenals, have brought Iraq and the United States to the brink of war. In Miller's writing, one could see an echo of Horace Greeley's On to Richmond, On to Richmond, or Pulitzer's crying for war with Spain. Although Miller conceded that some intelligence experts found the information on Iraq weapons spotty, She did not report specific and detailed objections, including a report filed with the U.S. government more than a year before Miller's article appeared by a physicist who concluded that the tubes were not meant for the enrichment of nuclear weapons. Shortly after Miller's article in the New York Times was published, Condoleezza Rice, Colin Powell, and Donald Rumsfeld all appeared on television and pointed to her story as a partial basis for going to war. Subsequent analysis by various agencies all concluded that there is no way the tubes could have been used for uranium enrichment. More insidious than a government starting up a newspaper to report on its own doings, here was a report that originated from the government, handed off to a reporter, and then later used as evidence for the same government's actions. The Times case shows how the newspapers, while beaten to the news by television, still have some sway over American thought that they had in the colonial and civil wars days. The information being in the Miller stories and this weapons of mass destruction information being in the New York Times over any other newspaper was key, as New York Times had a reputation of not being warm to the Bush administration.
Miller's also been tangled up as a possible co-conspirator with the Bush administration in the attempt to discredit Ambassador Joe Wilson after he questioned the intelligence used to justify the 2003 invasion of Iraq. Though she did not report on Wilson, she was apparently given information about the identity of Wilson's wife, who was a CIA agent. Miller's role in that saga may be revealed or may not be revealed in upcoming trials. But what is clear is that Judith Miller traded objectivity for access. For access to exclusive newsmakers, she presented the administration's side of the news and ignored contrasting viewpoints. And on the surface, it doesn't seem comparable to the situation of Alexander Hamilton or Thomas Jefferson or Andrew Jackson offering jobs or offering loans to newspaper publishers for good coverage. In a modern-day era, where scoops and deadlines are everything, and where journalists can make a name and sometimes multi-million dollar fortune from books and appearances, access to government leaders can be interpreted as another form of cash. From Horace Greeley to Judith Miller, the objectivity we assign to the media may be a fiction of our own imaginations. Most media don't make their lack of objectivity easy, as Greeley might have, and few would call a president a heathen or a scoundrel like early American papers did. But invariably, with all medias, there are biases. As did citizens of old, Americans must sample from a wide variety of sources to get the truth. Increasingly, blogs withhold articles up to scrutiny are playing a great role. And with the internet, Americans now have as many media choices as they did in the 19th century to compare and contrast viewpoints. But as with so many political developments today, we should not think that we are standing at the end of all time and that the lack of objectivity we sometimes see now is a new problem. With history beating up politics, I'm Bruce Carlson.